This week on the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion about Reconstruction and America's story. University of Pennsylvania law professor Kermit Roosevelt, who teaches constitutional law, asserts that modern America traces its political sentiments to Lincoln and the Reconstruction era rather than the Founding Fathers and the Revolution. So we use this idea of an American identity that's rooted in values, not in blood, not in geography, to bring us together, to inspire us to make sacrifices in the name of our shared ideals. So it's important to have an agreed-upon understanding of who we are, of what our values are. Professor Kermit Roosevelt is the great-great-grandson of Theodore Roosevelt. All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's lecture. So in less than an hour, I'm going to give you the argument of this book. I'm going to give you a new way of thinking about American history and American identity. Let's start with the old way, which is what I call the standard story. The standard story tells us American history starts in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration articulates the fundamental American ideal of equality with the startling new proposition that all men are created equal. And the American patriots fight for that ideal in the Revolution. They make it part of our higher law in the Constitution written in 1787. And our history since then has been a more or less steady progress towards realizing this ideal. Now, the standard story admits we've fallen short, but we're moving forward. And you can look at key moments in American history where Americans come together in the name of this ideal, and it guides us forward. 1776, of course, with the Declaration. 1863, with the Gettysburg Address when Lincoln tells us that America is dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. In 1963, when Martin Luther King calls on us to rise up and live out the true meaning of that phrase. So that's our fundamental principle, guiding us since the beginning. Three important structural points about this story before I start to look at it more critically. The first is it looks back. It says our ideals are there at the very beginning. In 1776, Thomas Jefferson told us what it means to be an American. Second, it's a success story. This ideal guides us through the crises of our history. And third, it's a story of continuity. It says we are connected to the founders by this ideal, by our continued adherence to the principles of the Declaration. As Lincoln says, it's the electric cord that links us over the generations. We are the same America that we've always been. Now, why does this story matter? Well, national stories are important. Not every nation has one in the same way that we do, but we need one more than other countries, maybe. So we use this idea of an American identity that's rooted in values, not in blood, not in geography, to bring us together to inspire us to make sacrifices in the name of our shared ideals. So it's important to have an agreed-upon understanding of who we are, of what our values are, of who are the heroes and villains of our story, and what we need to do to be good Americans. And this standard story worked, at least for some people, at least for a while. But it's not working anymore. And the main reason it's not working is that it's not very accurate. So some people have been challenging it, demanding that it be told more accurately. But as it gets more accurate, it gets less inspiring. And this is the conflict that we're seeing play out across the country now with the so-called anti-critical race theory bills. This is why public schools are banning the discussion of certain topics, why they're banning certain books, banning the 1619 Project, for instance, They're trying to prop up the standard story. And the clearest proof that this is about the standard story is maybe a Florida law that is not a you-can't-say-this kind of law, but a you-must-say-this kind of law. And what must teachers say? Very clearly, it's the standard story. This Florida law says, American history shall be taught as the development of a nation based on the universal principles of the Declaration of Independence. And that actually bans my book. They haven't mentioned me by name yet, Um, but if you're looking for a list of banned books, I'm banned in Florida. So what is the problem with this story 
in terms of accuracy? Well, actually just about everything. Um, and in the book, I go into this in more detail, but in an hour-long lecture, I'm just going to hit the high points. So let's look quickly at these different elements of the standard story. The first one, which is probably the most important, is the idea that the Declaration states our modern ideal of equality. So what does all men are created equal mean to us today? Something like all people deserve equal treatment by the government, maybe. Or at least they deserve equal concern and respect. So all people are of inherently equal worth, and the government should recognize that. But that's not what it meant in 1776 to the people who wrote and read the Declaration then. And I'll tell you what it did mean in a second. But to start, I want to explain how we can be pretty confident it didn't mean anything like our modern ideal of equality. So first, this idea of universal equality under law would have been pretty startling in 1776. And the standard story says that its interpretation is. But this is actually a point against it. So no government in the world followed that principle or ever had. So it wouldn't be very persuasive to put it forward as a self-evident truth. And in fact, Jefferson was not trying to be novel. He was trying to show that according to generally accepted principles, the colonists were justified in declaring independence. His goal, he said, was not to find new principles or new arguments never before thought of, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject. And his contemporaries didn't think it was novel either. People just didn't pay much attention to the preamble in 1776. And then second, going back to the point about no government following it, the colonists were not treating everyone equally. They were denying equality under the law in a pretty striking way. They were enslaving people. And the modern reading of the Declaration, of course, is inconsistent with slavery. So on our modern reading, it starts out with the colonists branding themselves as illegitimate oppressors. That doesn't make a lot of sense either. It would be very strange to start the Declaration with a principle that condemns something the colonists themselves are doing. And we can see this even more clearly if we look at the process of writing the Declaration. Because Jefferson's first draft included a complaint against King George that sounds like a criticism of slavery. It condemned him for engaging in the Atlantic slave trade and introducing slavery to America. Now, this isn't quite the same thing as a criticism of maintaining slavery in America. You could be against the international slave trade and still think American slavery shouldn't be abolished. But even this indirect criticism was too much for the Continental Congress, and they took it out. So there's really no way they would have left in as the first self-evident truth a principle that condemns slavery in America. So what did all men are created equal mean in 1776, if not that government should treat all people equally? It meant something very different and much more limited. It meant that in a world without government or laws, the hypothetical world that philosophers called the state of nature, no one had an obligation to obey anyone else. If people just popped into existence in that world, if they were created, as the Declaration says, no one would have legitimate authority over anyone else. And all men are created equal is the starting point for a theory of where legitimate political authority comes from. What it's doing basically is denying the divine right of kings. It's saying some people are not chosen by God to rule legitimately over others. And Jefferson actually confirmed this in his later writings. He restates the principle. He says, the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few, booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. So if it doesn't come from God, where does legitimate political authority come from? The Declaration gives an answer, which is basically a very standard form of Enlightenment social contract theory, which was the dominant political philosophy of the 18th century. In the hypothetical state of nature, people are free and equal, but they're not safe. They have natural rights to life and liberty, but other people might violate those rights. So people come together to form governments to protect their rights through collective action. Society 
is basically a mutual self-defense pact. Governments are formed to secure the rights of the people who form them and consent to subject themselves to the government's authority. So that's what makes a government legitimate, according to the Declaration. It's formed by consent, and it protects the rights of the people who form it. And if the government fails in its purpose of protecting their rights, people have the right to alter or abolish it and make a new one. That's the political theory of the Declaration. That's what the preamble sets out. It's very conventional in 1776, which is why people didn't pay much attention to it. And then the rest of the Declaration goes on to argue that the British government is not protecting the rights of the colonists. In fact, it's oppressing them. So they can reject its authority and make new governments. Now, what does this theory mean for slavery? Well, much less than you might think. It means that the government shouldn't enslave its own citizens, the insiders, the people who form the government. But it doesn't mean that the government shouldn't enslave outsiders, people who aren't part of the political community. And the insider-outsider distinction explains why the colonists could complain that King George was figuratively trying to make them into slaves while they were literally enslaving other people. Enslaving your own citizens delegitimizes the government. Enslaving outsiders doesn't. Now, the theory of the Declaration does mean that slavery is not the exercise of legitimate political authority, but no one thought it was. No one defended it on that basis. Everyone agreed slavery deprived enslaved people of a natural right to liberty. And the question was whether that deprivation was justified. Of course, now we can easily see that it's not, but this was contested at the time. People argued about it. Defenders of slavery would say things about the benefits of Christianity or civilization, or they'd talk about inherent racial differences, as Jefferson did. And these are terrible justifications, of course. But the point is, they're part of an argument that the Declaration just doesn't engage in. The Declaration is all about the rights of insiders. It mentions outsiders three times, but not to consider their rights. It brings up three groups of outsiders. All of them are presented as threats, as people who are going to kill the colonists, in fact. So these outsiders are the Hessian mercenaries that George is bringing across the sea to complete his works of death and destruction. The Native Americans, he is encouraging to attack the colonists, and the Declaration calls them merciless savages and the enslaved people that he's encouraging to rebel. That's the last, the gravest charge against King George. He's encouraging domestic insurrections. So the basic point there is the Declaration is not an anti-slavery document in 1776. It does not contain our modern idea of equality under law. And another point, which will be important later, it's not pro-democracy either. We tend to think of it as pro-democracy, But that's really mindless, because there isn't even a phrase to point to in support of that idea. What makes a government legitimate, according to the Declaration, is it's formed by consent, and it protects the natural rights of the insiders, the people who form it. That's all. A monarchy, even a hereditary monarchy, can do that. And that's why the colonists couldn't just say that George was illegitimate because he was a king. They had to show that he was a tyrant. So our misunderstanding of the Declaration is the main problem with the standard story, because the standard story takes the Declaration as the foundation for basically everything else. But I'll say a little bit about the other elements, too, because they reveal other problems. Was the Revolution a war for the principle of equality? Was it an inspiring struggle for the liberty of all? Not really. Different people had different understandings of the revolutionary ideology. And some people did think about it in terms of universal rights. But the picture is mixed. And overall, it doesn't favor the colonists. The best way to see this is probably to consider the relationship between the revolution and slavery. Slavery is the most extreme denial of liberty and equality that you can imagine. So how people acted with respect to it tells you something about their commitment to those values. So what happened with enslaved people during the revolution? Well, some enslaved people fought for the patriots, and some of them were rewarded with freedom. But some of the enslaved people were there in Washington's army 
because the colonists were allowed to avoid military service by providing substitutes, and some of them substituted the people they enslaved. In South Carolina, the colonial government tried to recruit white men to join the fight for liberty by promising to give them slaves if they signed up. Far more of the people enslaved by the Americans joined the British forces. Lord Dunmore formed what he called an Ethiopian regiment, whose uniforms included sashes that said liberty to slaves. The British engaged in mass emancipations, which the Americans thought was appalling and complained about in the Declaration and elsewhere. And after the war, the Treaty of Paris contained the demand that the British withdraw from the colonies without carrying away what the treaty called any Negroes or other property. Now, the British defied that. They didn't return the people that they had promised freedom. And United States diplomats tried for decades to make them pay compensation. So the revolution is not that inspiring as a war. The colonists are focused on their rights and their sense of being oppressed. And they're pretty blind to the ways that they're oppressing other people. What about the third part of the story, the 1787 Constitution? Well, the standard story tells us that the Constitution is a way of achieving the ideals of the Declaration, the promotion of equality, or the protection of individual rights. But this is also pretty far off, if you think about it. The 1787 Constitution is not about individual rights. It's actually not about individuals at all. It's basically designed to create a government that can make the states cooperate when necessary, and that can handle issues that can't be left to the states. That's not at all the kind of government that the Declaration describes. The governments in the Declaration are protecting the natural rights of individuals from other individuals. And the 1787 Constitution doesn't do this at all. There is not a single provision in the 1787 Constitution that puts limits on what an individual can do. And the federal government that the 1787 Constitution creates isn't in the business of protecting the natural rights of individuals either. Congress can't make it a crime for one American to kill another. It can't engage in the most basic protection of natural rights. In fact, there's only one context where the 1787 Constitution pays attention to individuals depriving other individuals of natural rights. It recognizes that some people are taking away other people's liberty, that some people are enslaving other people. And it pays special attention to slavery, but not because it's trying to protect individual rights. It pays attention to slavery because slavery is a source of interstate conflict. So the Constitution tries to manage that conflict. And it manages the conflict by protecting slavery. It protects the international slave trade from congressional interference until 1808. It strips states of the power to determine the legal status of people within their borders by providing that enslaved people who escape to free states cannot become free and must be returned. And it rewards slave states with extra power in the federal government. Representation in the House of Representatives based on their free population plus three-fifths of their enslaved population. And because the number of representatives is used to calculate the number of electors, this spills into the election of the president. Because the president nominates judges, it spills into the judiciary too. So every branch of the federal government has a pro-slavery tilt. So founding America, the America of 1776 and 1787, really isn't a great place to look if you're trying to find our commitment to equality and universal liberty. The ideology of founding America is what I call exclusive individualism. Exclusive because there's a strong distinction between insiders and outsiders. That line is crucial to the theory of the Declaration. The duty of the government is to protect the natural rights of insiders. And the outsiders in the Declaration are all threats to the lives of the colonists. The 1787 Constitution is exclusive too. It has a rule that black people can never become citizens of the United States. Now, surely some of you have the reaction, wait, that's not the 1787 Constitution. That's the Supreme Court's opinion in Dred Scott, and everyone knows Dred Scott was wrong. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Dred Scott is an evil decision, yeah, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. It might be a correct interpretation of an evil document. 
1787 Constitution clearly does have some evil pro-slavery provisions in it, and maybe Dred Scott was right. But there's a more important point. Dred Scott was a 7-2 decision. Maybe those seven justices were biased pro-slavery justices. Let's grant that. But now you need to ask, how did we end up with seven biased pro-slavery justices on the Supreme Court? The answer is they were appointed by pro-slavery presidents who were elected in part because of the three-fifths clause. So Dred Scott is not the product of racist individuals. Dred Scott is the product of systemic racism, and the system is the 1787 Constitution. So exclusive individualism means there's a strong and racialized insider-outsider line. That's the exclusive part. The individualism means that the duty of the government is to protect the rights of individual insiders. And basically what that amounts to is anti-redistribution. The government cannot take from one insider in order to give to another person. Now, as I describe it, that might not sound so bad. It means basically the government can't play favorites among the insiders. It has to treat them equally, you might think. But that's not quite it. Anti-redistribution means the government has to treat insiders neutrally. And neutrality is very different from equality. If you start from equality, neutrality might maintain it. It will prevent the government from producing inequality anyway. But if you start from inequality, or if inequality develops over time, and it always does, then neutrality locks in that inequality. Neutrality stops the government from addressing it. It stops the government from promoting equality. And that is the theory of the Declaration of Independence. The government is supposed to protect the natural rights of the people who formed it. It can't infringe on their rights to benefit outsiders, and it can't infringe on their rights to benefit other insiders if all it's doing is trying to make people equal. Now, the Declaration, of course, isn't law, but this theory has commanded a majority of the Supreme Court twice when the justices said the Constitution embodies it. First example is Lochner against New York, which is a famous case in the legal community, but not as well known outside it. In that case, the Supreme Court struck down a New York maximum hour law for bake shop employees because it was benefiting those employees at the expense of their employers. It was benefiting some insiders at the expense of others, and it was trying to promote equality, which the court said is not a legitimate goal of government. Interesting to the legal community, I said, but maybe not that well-known outside. But the other decision where this theory won is a decision that everyone knows. It's the one I just talked about. It's Dred Scott. Freeing enslaved people is benefiting outsiders at the expense of insiders. And according to the Declaration of Independence, no legitimate government would do such a thing. So the theory of the Declaration of Independence, if you take it the way the Supreme Court has taken it, if you take it the way it was understood in 1776, it says the government cannot try to promote equality. And it says the government cannot abolish slavery. Those are just facts about our constitutional history. That is what the Supreme Court has said in cases where the Declaration's theory has guided the outcome. But of course, that's not how we understand it now. We understand the Declaration to be anti-slavery and pro-equality. So where did that understanding come from? The answer is pretty simple. It's abolitionists. In the 1820s, as abolitionism is gaining steam, people are looking for a federal document to enlist in their cause. 1787 Constitution is not a very good candidate. It's actually pro-slavery, as I said. It's so pro-slavery that abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison publicly burns a copy, calling it a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. The Declaration of Independence does at least talk about people being created equal, so the opponents of slavery turn to it. And eventually, through the efforts of abolitionists, both black and white, and the Republican Party and Abraham Lincoln, a different ideology emerges. This is what I call inclusive equality. And it's basically the opposite of exclusive individualism. The inclusive part means outsiders can become insiders. Maybe states can't keep people out of their political communities. Maybe anyone born in the United States is a citizen. 
And the equality part means that the government should treat people equally and that redistribution is okay. The government can act to promote equality. It can take from people who have much and give to people who have little. And if I ask you now, which of these visions is our America? Exclusive individualism or inclusive equality? You'll probably say inclusive equality. And the answer is maybe. It was once. It could be again if we make it so. But right now, America is locked in a struggle between these visions, as it has been for about 200 years. And part of what I'm trying to do is to give you a clearer picture of that struggle and of what we have to do if we want inclusive equality to prevail. So now I shift basically into the second half of the lecture. First half is telling you why the standard story isn't accurate. And the answer is it misrepresents the founding. It tries to tell you that a society that was built on exclusive individualism was actually devoted to inclusive equality. That's just not true. This second half is about how inclusive equality emerged and fought and won for a little while and what that means for who we are and what our story is. So the inclusive equality reading of the Declaration emerges, I said, with abolitionists. And it's embraced by the Republican Party, and eventually it wins. It wins in the Civil War. And now we need to talk about how it wins and who it beats and what that means. So what was the Civil War about? What were the two sides fighting for? To figure this out, it helps to distinguish between two different kinds of revolutions. One is what I call a regime change revolution. This is typically an attempt to take over the entire country, and its basic argument is the existing political regime is unjust, and it must be overthrown. So you could think about the Russian Revolution overthrowing the Tsar, or the French Revolution overthrowing the monarchy. The other type is a status quo revolution, which is more often a secessionist movement. It's an attempt to separate. And the basic argument here is the existing regime is fine, but people are being denied what they're due under it. Now, how do the American revolutions fit into this framework? The first American revolution in 1776 is a status quo revolution. The colonists are basically complaining they've been denied their rights as Englishmen. And they're not trying to destroy the existing legal order just to separate themselves from it. The Civil War, or the second American Revolution in 1861, looks very much the same from the Confederate perspective. They don't say there's anything wrong with the Constitution as they understand it. They say that free states and the federal government are twisting the Constitution and denying the slave states the rights they were guaranteed when they joined the Union. The secession acts of several states offer to form a union with other seceding states on the basis of the principles of the US Constitution. And when the Confederates write their new Constitution, it's basically the same as the 1787 Constitution. Really what they do is they make their interpretation of the 1787 Constitution explicit. So it starts out, we the people of the Confederate states, and it specifies the Constitution is the act of the states in their sovereign capacities, not of a single people. They remove general welfare as a goal in the preamble, which the US Constitution has. They do that to prevent redistribution, like disaster relief. They put in explicit protections for slavery. Their Congress must recognize slavery in Confederate territories, and citizens can take enslaved people to any state without them becoming free. But it's pretty close to the 1787 Constitution. It's their version of the status quo, what they think they're entitled to. And from Lincoln's perspective, the war is also a war for the status quo, at least at the beginning. Lincoln's first inaugural says he has neither the right nor the inclination to interfere with slavery where it exists. He accepts the idea of an amendment entrenching slavery. Even after secession, he says restoration of the Union is the paramount goal. If he could save the Union without freeing any slaves, he would do it. The Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, issued September 22, 1862, says hereafter, as before, the war will be prosecuted to restore the Union. It's a threat to the rebels. If they do not end the rebellion, the people they enslave will be freed. But it's also an offer. 
If they lay down their arms, they can keep slavery. So at the beginning, both sides are fighting for their understanding of the status quo. At some point, though, and probably the best point is some time between September 1862 and January 1st, 1863, between the preliminary and the final Emancipation Proclamation, one side changes its mind. The status quo revolution turns into something else. It turns into a regime change revolution. But not on the Confederate side, on the side of the United States. The Confederates are still fighting their status quo revolution. They're trying to separate and enjoy the rights that they bargained for when they signed up. But Lincoln is leading a regime change revolution. The existing regime must be overthrown because it is unjust. And the existing regime here isn't the Confederacy. It's founding America. One way to see this is to ask, in the Civil War, whose side are the founding documents on? Whose side is the Declaration of Independence on? Lincoln says it's on his side, of course, in the Gettysburg Address. He says he's fighting for its central value of equality. But we've seen that's not its central value, not in 1776. Its central value then is actually something more like national self-determination. People can decide their government isn't doing what it was supposed to, and they can change it. That's what the American revolutionaries did. That's what the secessionists did, too. And they said this. They published declarations of causes explaining why secession was justified, and they often invoked the Declaration of Independence. In the name of the Declaration of Independence, they said, we declare our independence. Pretty straightforward. Lincoln, by contrast, was saying something more like, in the name of the Declaration of Independence, which says that just authority comes from the consent of the governed and that people can change their government, I will not let you change your government. I will use military force to compel you to stay in the Union, and then I will remake your society against your will without your consent. So who has a better claim to the Declaration? That's not really close. And I also think it's closer, it's less clear, But I also think the 1787 Constitution is on the side of the secessionists. The reason for that is the 1787 Constitution thinks of the federal government as a threat to individual rights, and it thinks of the states as their protectors. So if the federal government starts to behave tyrannically, the states will fight against it. And Federalist 46, written by Virginia slave owner James Madison, explicitly says they will win just like they did in the revolution. What would happen, he asks, if it came to force? 13 states against the national government, the states would win. Now, amazingly, that's exactly what happened if you accept the Confederate claims to Kentucky and Missouri. 13 states fought the national government. The first flag of the Confederacy, by the way, is 13 stars in a circle with red and white stripes in the background just like the Betsy Ross flag of 1776. Now, of course, for the Confederacy, each star represents a slave state, whereas with the Betsy Ross flag, oh, wait, that's also 13 states that recognize slavery. So the Civil War is kind of a replay of the Revolution. It's what Madison predicted, except he was wrong about the outcome and the national government won. And what that should tell you is that from the perspective of founding America, three of whose first four presidents were slave owners from Virginia, including James Madison, Lincoln's side in the Civil War is the bad guys. And that's even clearer, I think, during Reconstruction. So here's some history that maybe you weren't taught. How are the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, ratified? Well, the 13th Amendment, of course you know, that bans slavery, Congress proposes it, it goes out to the states, and it's ratified by three-quarters of them. The defeated Confederates accept that slavery is over, at least in name. But they try to restore it in practice with overtly discriminatory laws that tie the formerly enslaved into service contracts at low wages and deny them many rights. Congress passes Civil Rights Acts to wipe out that discrimination, and one of the things those acts say is that anyone born in the U.S. is a citizen. But it's not clear that Congress can actually do that. It goes against the Dred Scott decision, so the Supreme Court might say it's unconstitutional. And also, if the former Confederate states 
send their senators and representatives back to Congress, they might take control and repeal the Civil Rights Acts. In a sort of ironic twist, the fact that slavery has been abolished gives the South more power in Congress because now the Three-Fifths Compromise has been superseded and the formerly enslaved are counted as full persons. So Congress decides these acts need to be made part of the Constitution. That's what the 14th Amendment does, at least in part. It grants birthright citizenship, and then it says that with this citizenship come rights to liberty and equality that the states have to respect. This is a massive intrusion on state authority. States can't decide anymore who is part of their political community, who gets to be a citizen. They can't draw the insider-outsider line. And they have to treat people equally. The 14th Amendment is going to take a regime of exclusive individualism and turn it into one of inclusive equality. The former Confederate states don't like that, and they say no. So this is the part of the history that I expect you probably didn't learn in great detail. I don't think that we teach it the way that we should. The former Confederate states, the states that seceded and then ratified the 13th Amendment, they reject the 14th Amendment. Ten state legislatures vote against it. By 1867, it is clear it will not get the required three-quarters of the states voting in favor. And this is where things get really radical, because Congress, in response, simply annihilates those states. It declares that no governments exist. It puts them under the control of the U.S. Army. There are no state governments. There aren't even states. There are five military districts in the South. And then Congress makes new states. It orders the people of the South to hold constitutional conventions and write new constitutions and make new legislatures. But the people who are doing that are not the same people who made the old states. The formerly enslaved get to vote for delegates to the conventions and participate in them, Congress says. The former Confederates do not. So Congress has not only said who's going to be a citizen of these states, it said who gets to exercise political power. These are really new states. The name is the same, the geography is the same, but the political community is totally different. It's a revolution from above, and it's a regime change revolution. And these new states are the ones that ratify the 14th Amendment. So if you look at the state legislatures, it's pretty clear they are different. The legislatures that seceded in 1861 are all white and all Democrats. The legislatures that ratified the 13th Amendment are all white and still almost all Democrats. But the legislatures that ratify the 14th Amendment are racially integrated and they're all Republican. That ratification, I say, is what makes our new nation, Reconstruction America. So I said already the Civil War might look bad from the perspective of founding America. Right? Maybe the national government is the bad guys. Maybe the bad guys won. Well, what about this? What would Madison and Jefferson and the rest Think about Congress annihilating states, dissolving their governments, replacing them with different ones. I think it's pretty clear they would have been appalled. The national government usurping state authority is the big founding fear. Dissolving legislatures is actually one of the complaints in the Declaration against King George. And even if we're just concerned about legality, it is not at all clear that the Reconstruction Acts, which wipe out the state governments, have a basis in the Constitution. If the Civil War was not bad enough, this is definitely Madison's nightmare come true. So our standard story says, in the Civil War, founding America fights against this deviant institution of slavery that somehow popped up despite its obvious inconsistency with America's deepest values. And founding America wins the war, and it's an interesting question, who is it fighting against? And founding America is redeemed. And I am saying no. That's not what happens. Founding America loses, and it is destroyed, because founding America is very much like the Confederacy, not just because every state recognizes slavery in 1776, but because it shares the ideology of exclusive individualism. Lincoln's revolution, which eradicates slavery and replaces exclusive individualism with inclusive equality, didn't just destroy the Confederacy. It destroyed founding America. And it put Reconstruction America in its place. And Reconstruction America is our America. 
So we are not the heirs of the founders. We are not connected to them. We are the heirs of the people who defeated and overthrew them. So what's the big takeaway from the second part? Well, the standard story had some nice features. Right? It had a short document that states our ideals. That's the Declaration of Independence. That's handy. right? You can memorize it. And it had a war that was fought for those ideals, the revolution. That's inspiring. Right? You can see people put their lives on the line for these values. And it had a longer document that gave them the force of law. That's the 1787 Constitution. And that shows a real national commitment. So none of these things are true. But what I've just given you is a different story that has the same ideals of equality and the same features and is true. Because the Gettysburg Address is a short statement of our values you can memorize. People do memorize it. The Civil War is a war for them where people laid down their lives for freedom and equality. And the Reconstruction Constitution makes them law and shows our commitment to those values. So this story is better because it's more true, but it's also more inspiring. The Gettysburg Address is better than the Declaration of Independence. It's pro-democracy, government by the people. Lincoln is better than Jefferson. He didn't, for instance, enslave his own children. The Civil War is better than the Revolution. It's really a war for liberty. The Reconstruction Constitution is better than the 1787 Constitution. It pays attention to individual rights. And we as a people don't have to say that our ideals came from enslavers and coexisted with slavery. We say they came from abolitionists, and they were born in the struggle against slavery. This story is also, I think, more productive. So the heroes of the standard story are the patriots of 1776, who focused rather obsessively on supposed injustices inflicted against them and ignored the injustices they inflicted on others. The heroes of my better story are people who saw injustice in the world, injustice they didn't create, and worked to end it, even at great cost to themselves. And that's a better lesson in terms of what we should do to be good Americans, right? Don't obsess about your own grievances. Try to help other people. Make sacrifices for the common good. The better story, I think, includes and excludes the right people. So some people have difficulty with it because they have a hard time seeing themselves in Reconstruction. Well, no story is perfectly inclusive. There are people who have a hard time seeing themselves in the founding, too. Now, the people who have a hard time seeing themselves in the founding are people who think that writing all men are created equal doesn't make up for enslaving your children. The people who have a hard time seeing themselves in Reconstruction are the people who identify with the Confederates, who fought a war to preserve a society built on slavery. And if the question is which of those groups should we marginalize, which should we make uncomfortable, which group should doubt whether America really shares their values, I think the answer to that is pretty clear. And to finish, let me try to connect this story a little more explicitly to the present day. So one thing I'm trying to do is to give you a better story, a story that shows you an America you can believe in. But another thing I'm trying to do is to promote inclusive equality in the struggle against exclusive individualism, because that struggle is still going on. The better story that I gave you sounded happy, maybe, but it doesn't end in 1868. Reconstruction fails. It's overthrown by white supremacists, during the period that historians call redemption. It's overthrown by violence because the federal government stops protecting the integrated governments in the South. White Americans choose unity, unity among whites over justice, which is actually the common theme for most of American history. It's unity, but it's built on oppression and exclusion. And for almost 100 years, the promise of the Reconstruction Amendments is denied until the civil rights movement in the second half of the 20th century and the Warren Court and Congress's Civil Rights Act and maybe most important, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This is what historians call the second reconstruction. But just like the first reconstruction, there's a backlash. There's what I call the second redemption. Now that term is less common among historians, but I think it's catching on. And I date it basically to 1980 when Reagan wins 44 states, but only 14% of the black vote. 
than 49 states and 9% of the black vote in 1984. It's white unity at the expense of racial equality. Reagan promises a return to the values of the founding, right? That's originalism, which is what Reagan's Justice Department makes very prominent. That's really where it comes from in our modern history. But what he's offering is exclusive individualism. And that's not just the ideology of the founding, it's the ideology of the Confederacy, too. Outsiders are dangerous. They're taking what belongs to you, the real Americans. They're a threat to your safety. And there's a strong racial element to this. The subtext is, we don't accept that all citizens are equal. We don't accept that just being born here makes you a full and equal member of our political community. We don't accept the 14th Amendment. We don't accept Reconstruction. So take away Reconstruction, and you have the founding. And Reagan says he's fighting for the values of the founding in a nation that has turned away from them. And that's true. But we've seen that fight before, and it's redemption. Take away Reconstruction, and you have the Confederacy. This second redemption doesn't win immediately. We go back and forth. Inclusive equality is fighting against exclusive individualism. And we're still fighting, and there are lots of different battles to look at, and the Supreme Court dismantling the Voting Rights Act is a very important thread. But I want to focus on one, which is January 6th. What was that? Well, it's white paramilitaries, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, attacking the federal government. So what moment in our history does that echo? What do we call it when white paramilitaries fight the national government? Well, we call it 1776, maybe, if they're trying to separate. And of course, the January 6th insurrectionists talked a lot about 1776. The Sons of Liberty, the Minutemen. It's the revolution. But if they're not trying to separate, if they're trying to take over, that's more like 1876. That's the Red Shirts, the White League, the Klan. That's redemption. And what we're seeing now is redemption on a national scale. It's an attempt by a minority to reject the results of democracy and capture the federal government, taking advantage of some of the features of the Constitution that make it possible to do that within the law and twisting the political process in other ways that might not be legal, and using violence, too. So that struggle is not over. And we are helping the enemies of democracy if we tell ourselves a story where white paramilitaries fighting the national government are the heroes, where patriotic Americans decide the government is infringing on their rights and so they can rebel. And what matters is not democracy, but protecting the rights of insiders. Joe Biden gave a speech in Philadelphia recently which I liked a lot because he said, there's a real threat to our democracy. And he called on people to oppose it in the name of our national values. He said, you can't be pro-America and pro-insurrection. But of course you can if your America is the America of 1776. That's what 1776 is all about. Or if your America is revolutionary America or redemption America, the America of 1876. That's what it's all about. If you lose the election, take power anyway. Make sure the government protects the people it's supposed to, the real Americans, not the outsiders forced on you by someone else's idea of equality. So for a lot of reasons, on just about every dimension that you can think of, I believe I have a better story. It's more accurate. It does a better job of explaining the historical facts. It's more inspiring. It shows a better America, a nation worthy of our faith. It's more inclusive. It has room for everyone who really believes in equality. It teaches us better lessons, not to obsess about our own grievances, but to see the injustice in a world we didn't make, injustice that's not our fault, and try to do something about it. It calls on us not to live up to some founding myth, but to make a future that's better than the past. It gives us the tools to defend the democracy that so many Americans died for. And I believe the fight is not lost. I believe the best America lies ahead and not behind us. And the nation that never was 
still may be. But ultimately, that's going to be up to you. Thank you. All right, so we're going for an hour. We've got a little bit of time for questions. Um, I guess I'll just call on people. Um, should you come to the mic? Do you want to come to the mic? I guess that's what the mic's for. Hi, my name is Alexander. I'm a 1L. Um, so when you say that the Reconstruction America really isn't the heirs to the founders, couldn't you say that perhaps you're being a little bit too, um, you're homogenizing the founders a bit too much? Perhaps there was different um, strands of thoughts amongst the founders. Um, there was, even within individuals, they didn't have a very clear idea, like they, they believed in equality, but at the same time they had these horrendous ideas. Maybe you could say that the America of Reconstruction and the rebels of the Civil War, they were inheriting two different strands of the founders' thoughts. Would you say that's correct? Or? I would say that's partially correct. So there's definitely diversity of opinion among the founders. So you, know, you can look at the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Three-quarters of them owned slaves. Um, some of them were opposed to slavery. You can look at the drafters of the 1787 Constitution. You've got free states and slave states represented there. So yes, people have different views. And of course, right? where does the ideology of inclusive equality come from? It comes from people who were there in founding America. Um, it's not an alien ideology that comes in you know, from nowhere. So yes, it's there. Um, and maybe you could say that I'm homogenizing the founders a bit. I think that I'm correctly identifying the dominant political philosophy. Right? That's what I would say I'm doing. And I think that our standard story homogenizes the founders massively in the wrong direction and takes what was at best a minority view and elevates it because that's what we want to believe that we're committed in now. We want to believe that we're connected to the founders. So we have to say that was their ideology too. And I think that this really prevents us from seeing the past accurately. It prevents us from understanding the Declaration of Independence the way it was understood and the 1787 Constitution the way it was understood. And it makes us say things like, Dred Scott has to be wrong because we feel a connection to the 1787 Constitution. We can't admit that it might just have produced that monstrous decision. Thank you. Yeah? Oh, okay. Self-determination and freedom was an essential tenet for the founders. Um, the Confederacy seems to hark on that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't know that I'm fully convinced yet that freedom, or sorry, that, um, that equality was not one of their central values. Um, so you said, you know, according to the Declaration, all men are created equal. Then the next line is that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And you said that they're referring to political philosophy there. But that seems to be a religious, um, a religious idea there that they're endowed by their creator, capital C, by a god, Christian god, who had a lot of equality um, ideas. How are you coming to the conclusion that that idea is just not in there? It seems to me that there's a struggle between freedom and equality, not that equality just didn't exist. Well, so I mean, one thing you can do is you can look at the practice, which is not very egalitarian. So there's massive discrimination against outsiders, of course, there's slavery. There is pretty massive discrimination against insiders, too, if you look at the treatment of women, if you look at the treatment of non-property holding men. So there is a lot of inequality. Now, compared to some of the feudal societies that existed before, Maybe they're not so bad. I'm not saying the American Revolution is not a step in the right direction. But on the precise question of inalienable rights, I think it, again, is important to understand how the argument of the Declaration works and why Jefferson said that. Because when he's talking about inalienable rights, he's not saying these are very important rights that no one should interfere with. Right? That doesn't really matter to the Declaration. The point of saying that liberty is inalienable means, right, and 
inalienable, very precise legal concept. Jefferson's a lawyer. He's using it, understanding what it means. It means you cannot give it away. You cannot divest yourself of it. Why does that matter? Because so far the Declaration is tracking consensus Enlightenment social contract theory. But when you get to the question of natural rights, people diverge. Locke has a different view from Hobbes. Right? Hobbes says people start out endowed with natural liberty, and then they surrender that liberty to the sovereign irrevocably. And the sovereign has absolute authority over them, and they can't complain about what the sovereign is doing. And if you go that way, then you have no right to rebel. So here, Jefferson has to pick between Locke and Hobbes. And he picks Locke by saying liberty is inalienable, meaning you cannot surrender your right to liberty. You always have the right to complain if the government violates your liberty. And that's what that's doing there. Our courts look to the documents of the founding America when uh, deciding what's constitutional or what, you know, what comports with our legal system today. If the America that we inhabit or the one that represents our values is the Reconstruction America, should our courts take a different approach? Like, how do you legally operationalize the vision of a second America that you've stipulated? Yeah, so the main thing that you do is your originalism looks at 1868, um, which isn't necessarily going to give you great outcomes depending on what you're doing. Like Dobbs is kind of an 1868 originalism decision, looking at the rights of women. Um, But it makes you understand that the balance between the states and the federal government in particular is not the one that was struck in 1787. So if you're trying to decide whether the Affordable Care Act is a massive, unprecedented overreach of federal authority, you don't read the Federalist Papers and look at what James Madison said about the balance between the states and the federal government, you understand, you know what? The federal government wiped out the states and made new ones. And when you compare the Affordable Care Act to that, it actually doesn't look so extreme and unprecedented. So you've got an 1868 baseline for some of the foundational questions rather than a 1787 one. My name is Dylan. I'm a 3L. Um, I just had a question about if we switch the paradigm from the concept of individuals having the right to challenge their the, the government um, to something that's more in line with the reconstruction and equality, how does that shift our concept of where the authority or the um, kind of flows from the people, flows from the, just the authority to, to govern? Kind of, how does that shift? Well, so I'm not sure that it changes our understanding of where authority comes from, because the theory of the Declaration absolutely is authority comes from the people, and governments derive their authority from the consent of the governed. What it does do maybe is make us think about democracy. So as I said, the Declaration of Independence is not a pro-democracy document. And it's astounding to me that people think this, because unlike equality, There is not even a suggestive phrase in the Declaration that points to democracy. So what that suggests is when you're thinking about how power is exercised, if you're adopting the perspective of 1776, it doesn't really matter if it's a democracy or not. All you need is consent and protection of the rights of insiders. And if you look at the 1787 Constitution, it's not that democratic. I mean, it is a step forward. Again, like, it's not a monarchy. That's a good thing. But it really does not meet our modern standards of popular accountability. And the independent state legislature theory that we're seeing floated now is actually a manifestation of that, right? Because the 1787 Constitution gives control over the appointment of electors to the state legislature. They don't have to have a popular election. You have no right to vote for president unless the state allows you. So we do see something different there, right? Because with the Gettysburg Address, we're talking about government by the people. And that is the legitimating principle for government going forward, I think. So now we can ask, is this government fairly representing the interests of everyone? Does everyone have an equal voice in the political process? Which is a question I think you can't ask if you're guided by the Declaration of Independence. still had 
no legal rights, um, talking specifically about women. So if we're basing our conception of equality on 1868, how do you square that with um, the clearly like subjugated class of women? Yeah, so that's a very good question, I think. And if you look at the practices and attitudes of 1868, it's not a pretty picture, right? And this is what Dobbs did. Dobbs said, you know, hey, what kind of rights did women have in 1868? Um, And the answer is they were denied a lot of rights because they were not viewed as equals. And maybe the best expression of this is a kind of infamous concurring opinion by Justice Bradley in 1872. in the case Bradwell against Illinois, where a woman wants to challenge a state law that prohibits her from becoming a lawyer. And the Supreme Court sort of laughs her out of court. And Justice Bradley concurring says, the natural and proper timidity and delicacy that belong to the female sex evidently unfits her for many of the occupations of civil life. So that's the attitude in 1868. And if you say we're basing our standards on those attitudes, then you get decisions like Dobbs. But I think it's important to understand Dobbs is not originalist. Dobbs is doing this weird historical analysis that is not originalist unless you think that's what the due process clause tells you to do, use the attitudes of 1868. I don't think it does. And I don't think the Equal Protection Clause does that either, sort of more obviously. I think the Equal Protection Clause tells you that governments cannot discriminate in a way that is arbitrary, oppressive, or unjustified. And if you're trying to figure out whether something is arbitrary, oppressive, or unjustified, Look at contemporary attitudes. Look at what we know to be true now and what we believe to be morally correct. And that actually gives you the kind of expansive, propulsive doctrine that we've historically had with equal protection, where social movements change people's minds and then their victories are sort of ratified by Supreme Court decisions recognizing their equal status. And I think you do have that with respect to, say, women's political rights through the idea of democracy with the Gettysburg Address. So according to the Declaration of Independence, there's nothing wrong with denying women the right to participate in the political process, even though they're insiders, as long as their natural rights are being protected. Now, they're not, because if you deny people a voice in the political process, you tend not to protect their rights. But they could say, you know, founding America could say they were doing that, whereas... If you have a principle of democracy, the idea is, you know, the way to make sure that you are protecting people's rights and treating them fairly is to give them a voice in the political process. And that's an idea that also has this propulsive, expansive force that can lead you to broaden political participation over time. Uh, yeah? Do we, do we have to stop? Do we have, are we like... I can, I can hold it or talk to you. Uh, we do one more. I think uh, we could do one more, I guess. No, I feel like mine's kind of like rambly. I, I, should just, <laughs> I should just knock it out. Okay, so you're talking about um, like this uh, narrative of the founding or like where it is that our rights come from as a means of, uh, I presume, justifying political action of some kind. And you bring up Reagan. And so the contrast uh, between specifically Reagan and your vision seems to be that Reagan's vision and offer to America in the 80 election is an opportunity for specifically white America to, uh, to look away and to forget the difficulties of the last 20 years, to absolve themselves of some kind of an obligation to actively seek out um, you know, a redress of harms, whereas your vision creates an, uh, an obligation and, and makes it incumbent upon us to not only bear witness to injustices, but to actively seek redress for those injustices. And so like, the political tension there seems to be that like, there is this opportunity cost for people who would otherwise benefit from an inherently unjust system to always like take the path of least resistance um, towards the vision, the narrative that justifies. You know, I'll, I'll call it laziness and be a little pithy. Um, so, like, what is like, what do you see as like the applicability of your vision to you know the electoral political context? Like, how do we build this as a vision, not only of how to view the country's founding ideals of how to um, approach the law, but to do democracy? Well, I mean, I think the answer to that is sort of straightforward, although it might not be satisfying to you, which is if people think about this as the American story, and if they think about the American heroes as the people who see injustice in the world and work to change it, even if it benefits them, then maybe you get a different attitude. Because the standard story tells people America has always fundamentally been devoted to equality. 
And we are progressing towards that over time. And basically, like, you don't have to do that much, right? You can be a sort of comfortable person who doesn't like injustice but doesn't like conflict either. And you can say, you know what? Let's just wait. Things will work out. This is basically what Martin Luther King complains about with the white moderates. So letter from the Birmingham jail, he's saying, I have almost come to believe that the greater barrier to advancement towards equality is not the Klan and the explicitly racist people, but the white moderates who are like, yes, of course I agree with your goals, but you know, be calm, be patient, everything is going to get better because it inevitably gets better because this is America and equality is in our soul. And if you're like, no, equality is an idea that comes in and fights and you only achieve equality through struggle. And what is best about us comes from actually those most intense moments of struggle, right? Without slavery, you don't get abolition. Without the Civil War, you don't get the 14th Amendment. Without the injustice that people fought against, we would not be the nation we are. So if you take that view, then I think it's much more like a call to action. How do you get people to see that? Well, I think we have to like, change the way we teach American history. So starting at like the high school level, I would like an understanding of American history that centers Reconstruction. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.